Thanks, Jose and Stephen. Um, we are in a series on the book of 1 John. But just before we jump into that, I just want to mention one thing. If you've noticed when you come in, uh, we have now uh, new artwork, more artwork hanging in the foyer. You know, we've always kind of felt like we're in an arts community, and we felt like the value of the arts oftentimes is under uh, recognized or underlooked by Christians, and uh, so we don't want that to happen. We really want to be involved in that. So there's new pictures, and and uh, we, we've had two on the uh, entry walls as you first come in there that uh, George Lamb has uh, graciously allowed us to display, and now we have four new ones um, that are there. Uh, Pam Oden has graciously allowed us to display them. And I don't know if George is here, but I know Pam is, and just I know she doesn't want anything, but I, just for a moment, if you would stand, we would appreciate that. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Mm. Pam and George both uh, believe strongly about their art uh, um, flowing from their relationship with Jesus Christ and the beauty that we have in this world that God has created, and I think it's awesome. One of the other things I thought I'd like to mention is sometimes I'll get people that will say, what goes on here during the week? Like, what happens during, like, sometimes people say, Bob, what, do, do you ever show up, or is it just like you just show up on Sundays and then, and then you're off for the rest of the week? Okay, that's not true. Um, a lot of stuff happens during the day, but also a lot of stuff happens at different times. You know, if you come here on a Monday night, you'll see a bunch of people uh, running up and down, shooting hoops and, and using this facility. If you come on a Tuesday night, you'll see a, a group called Faith and Fitness that oftentimes is here or they are outside when the weather's nice. If you come on Wednesday night, you'll see your kids is what you'll see. You'll see a whole bunch of young kids and middle schoolers and high schoolers at different times of the night. Um, Thursday night, it can vary. There's different groups at different times. Um, right now on Thursday night, there's, a, there's an outside group that is, is using our facility because we want to be a part of this community. Um, and then there's uh, sometimes things that just happen, you know, at certain times, not, not as regular. Um, this Saturday, uh, the uh, eastern half of Virginia Young Life held uh, their prayer day. And I should have videoed some of it for you. Every single chair was full of college students and staff members who are involved in Young Life. And they spent the whole day worshiping and in prayer for the teens that they serve. There was a ton of yearbooks in the back, and they had a system where every yearbook got opened up by a couple of people, and each student in that yearbook was individually prayed for. How cool is that? How cool is that? You think about that. It's kids from you know Richmond, Fredericksburg, Eastern Shore, Virginia Beach, Norfolk, the peninsula, all those kids who go to public school got prayed for. And, and, and they brought all these people together, 400 and something people together to pray for them and to spend the day in prayer and to fast, which made me feel guilty because I had to run into my office with some food and eat it and not let them see me because all of a sudden I realized, oh, they're fasting. It wouldn't be good for me to walk around with a burger. You know, hey guys, what's up? <laughs> but this is what goes on. This is why we built this building because we want to impact our community for Jesus Christ. And we want to impact our community for, for Jesus Christ by allowing outside groups to come in, by allowing Young Life, to, by allowing crew, whoever it is. We want to do that. That's what this building was built for. And that's why it's being used. And when you give, 
to this church, that's what you're financing. That kind of stuff. During, every week, during the week, some mothers come in and pray for kids during the day. The mothers, and, and, and just all these things are going on. And you're a part of it. And you know, you know, if you didn't come by yesterday, you wouldn't have even known. But it was an amazing sight. It was amazing to see them worship, to see them pray in different groups. and They just spread out all over this place, praying for the teenagers that they minister to. We want to be a part of that. We want to facilitate that. That's what this is all about. It really is. All right. 1 John chapter 3, 11 to 18. Uh, Stephen, our youth director, just read it for you. And I just want to remind you, and I, I reminded you a little earlier, uh, this passage, chapter 3, this is a part of a long argument that John is making. But he starts, he starts off by saying, look at this great love God has for us. Look at your destiny. Look at your meaning. Look at the purpose that he has for you. Now, this is when the purification, purify yourself. Purification comes in because you're focusing on those things. All right, and then last week, John defined sin for us. He said it is, breaking, it is a breaking of the law, and it is an act of rebellion against God and his will for us. We've tended to water down sin in our culture. We have to understand, it is breaking of the law. It is an act of rebellion against God and against his will for us. It is me saying, I don't want you. I know better. I don't want you. I can do better. I want to be the person running my life. I want to be in charge. That's what's going on. And Jesus came to free us. So although sin is still a struggle, but we should see the signs of victory. John is teaching this in that previous, previous passage. We should see the signs of victory as we grow in the Lord. And then he talks about the mark of Christian love. And now he's going to develop that thought. It's, it's just kind of rolling logically down as we work through chapter 3. And so the first thing I want you to see is he's going to proclaim a message. He says in verse 11, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John is dealing with the fact that we should, we're knowing we're children of God, and therefore we should live accordingly. You know, right now there's all kinds of sicknesses going around. This is that time of year. And I know when I'm sick, a lot of times, I know I'm sick. How do I know I'm sick? I know I'm sick by symptoms. You know, it's a running nose, it's a headache, it's congestion, it's this, it's that, it's a cough, whatever it is. And the symptoms point to a sickness, all right? And so John is now going to show that believers show who they are by the symptoms that we see. They're the symptoms of being in fellowship with God. And it starts with our message, from the beginning, love one another. Now John's looking all the way back to Jesus here, in John 13 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so Jesus is saying something here. He's saying this, what is the proof of intimacy with God? He says, it's going to happen like this. You're going to love God. You're going you're to love God. You're going to love others. It's going to work out that way. That's the symptom. And so when we love God, then the proof of us loving God is how do we love our brothers and sisters? How do we love our neighbors? And John and other, the other biblical writers emphasize this over and over all the time. We are family. Our relationship is unique and it's distinctive. And I've mentioned this before. You think about it. For most of us, we only know each other here because of Jesus Christ. That's the whole reason. 
apart from Jesus Christ, let me just be honest, I don't know if I'd care about very many of you. Some of you say, Bob, you know, would you pray for me? No, I'm not going to pray for you. Leave me alone. Don't, don't hassle me with your problems. What would I, see, that, that's how it is. If, you know, but, but because of Jesus Christ, if you say, Bob, will you pray? I say, yes, I will. You're my brother. You're my sister. Of course I will. I will pray for you. And so then when we love God, then the proof is we, it shows, it works out in our love for brothers and sisters. So what is this love here? Now, he uses that word agape, and we've talked about that. It's that self-sacrificial love. It's that unconditional love. But let me give you a little bit, flesh it out a little bit. It is the responsibility to demonstrate selfless concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ as our response to the grace of God shown to us. Now, I want you to see two key words here, responsibility and response. We have this responsibility, and this response has to come out of it. Agape love is a responsibility. It's given to us as a commandment. It involves us making choices. God only commands us to do what involves choices, things that we can choose. In other words, you can't, God never says, I command you to like that person. Why? Because I can't make myself like someone. That's an emotion. And I can't just manufacture emotions anytime I want. Because if I could, it would make things so much easier, right? If I was mad at somebody and I said, you know what, doggone it, I'm going to like them instead of get mad at them. Boop. Everything's great, right? But I can't do that. Emotions are something that happen. We cannot control them. So he doesn't command us to like our enemies. He commands us to love our enemies. Why? Because there's a choice involved. Love is an act of the will. And so this is, this is our, our, our responsibility to demonstrate selfless concerns for our brothers and sisters in Christ as our response to the grace of God shown to us. So he says, love your enemies. Don't like them. You don't have to like them. If there's someone that you go to school with, someone that you work with, someone in your family, I hope not in family, if, if, but if there's someone like that who just drives you crazy and makes you frustrated, God doesn't say, nope, from now on you have to like them. He doesn't say that. He says, love them. So what does that mean? He says, treat them in a certain way. Why? Simply because they're created in the image of God. They deserve a certain amount of respect in how you treat them. This is the foundation of our, our, uh, our, our ministry to the homeless. I don't care if a homeless person is there because of accidental circumstances that were thrust upon them or if they're there because of mistakes and poor decisions and things that they've done in their past. Because I get that all the time from some people. They say, well, all those people, you know, they they take drugs, they do this, they do this, they do this. It's their fault they're like that. And I say, you know what? That's not always true, first. But secondly, I don't care. I don't care. That person is created in the image of God. Therefore, they deserve a certain amount of respect, a certain amount of care, just based on the fact that they're a human being alive on this earth, and Jesus Christ died for them, just like he died for me. So he only commands us to do what involves choices, because it's an act of the will. So there's a responsibility here. But it's not just responsibility, because if it's just responsibility, then we would be doing things from duty. And we all... All we all want to love out of more than just duty. You can't have a marriage where someone is always saying, am I supposed to do this? Because if I'm supposed to do this, then I will. Because that's how I'm supposed to show love to you. 
That doesn't work out. That doesn't work out in a marriage, you know? It doesn't work out. If I read one time on some blog and they're saying every, at least once a week, you should do something special. Buy some flowers, something like that for your wife. So I come to my wife with some flowers and I say, you know, I read in the blog that I'm supposed to do this. Here. Love you. I'd watch those flowers go, stomp, stomp. Love that. You know, it's just that that's what would happen. Because when we do something out of duty, the love isn't flourishing in it. It won't work. And so now the response is key in this definition. Because he always commands us to do things in the context of what he has done for us. And that's reflected in this definition as our response to the grace of God shown to us. Because we have to focus on that's why That's why in the very beginning of chapter 3, John is saying, focus on his love for you. Focus on his plan for you. Focus on your identity in Jesus Christ. Now go love. Now purify. Because when you focus like that, you focus on God's love for you, then he empowers you and you can respond to someone else based on that. When you focus on God's grace shown to you, then you're able to be more graceful to other people. Because some people, let's face it, some people are tough to love. It can be hard. Some people, you know, whatever. They, maybe they smell bad. Maybe they talk too much. Maybe they talk too little. Maybe they're bad drivers. Oof. It's a tough one. Maybe they like the wrong sports teams. Some of you don't know what I just did. <laughs> My wife is from Boston, <laughs> so I also am looking for a place to sleep tonight. I don't know if that would be a possibility. Some people are tough to love. I mean, some, I know this is hard to believe, but there's some people that don't like the Lord of the Rings. Man, that's out on the edge. That's the pale right there. That's the tough area to love. But when I realized what it took for my salvation so that I get a good glimpse of how bad I am. When I understand why God loves me, because he chose to. I am not lovable. He didn't choose me because I'm lovable. He just chose me. He says that to Israel. He talks to them at the very beginning. He says, what, do you think you were some kind of great nation? That's why I chose you? You're a bunch of punks. It's kind of the Hebrew a little bit phrase there, but... He just says, you're nothing. You're worthless. I love you because I chose to love you. And I'm going to show how great I am through you. I have a, a little grandson named Lyndon. Very small. Just started learning to walk. Not articulating much. And you see him, you know, this little chubby walking around. And it's just so cute. You go, oh, look at him. He's, just so cute. He's like a little angel. Then we're eating with him. Yeah. So then we're eating with him. And he wants something. He wants this cookie that he's not allowed to have yet because he's got to finish this. And he's like, eh. And they're like, no. And all of a sudden, he just looks and he goes, Urgh. I was like, oh, my goodness. Demon spawn. I mean, this is like out of a horror movie, right? If his head goes full circle, I'm out. I'm out. Great kids. See, I mean, I just, that, it just, that growl, and they're going, oh, he's just our little gremlin. I'm like, man, that's scary. 
because he's not so cute. He's not a little angel. He's got this low guttural growl that just kind of wakes you up to who he is, really. And so, God chose us because it's a choice. We have a choice in this matter. He tells us to love because we have a choice in this matter. And failure to love is failure to know God properly. You know, it's interesting studying the history. I love, you know, history stuff. And I love looking back at the beginning of the church. You know, the, the, the third largest city possibly in the world, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, for sure, is the city of Antioch. Well over half a million people, maybe a, a million or more people in this city. It was an incredibly ethnically diverse city. Um, ethnically and religiously, incredibly diverse. And they had problems with, with that diversity. You know, all cities back then built walls around the city as protection. This is what's interesting. Antioch had walls through the city to keep people apart because there were so many problems. We know they had at least four large areas and possibly some other small ones that were walled off. They had a Syrian section they had a Jewish section, they had an African section, and then they had a Greek-Roman section. There was that big four and then some other small ones. And so in Acts chapter 11, what happens is word gets to, to um, the disciples that people are becoming Christians like crazy in Antioch, and they're crossing the walls. They're crossing the walls. And Antioch is the first place where they ever called Christians Christians. And it was because they didn't have a word that would fit who these people were and how crazy they were acting. They'd never seen anything like this. They'd never seen people give up their ethnic pride and cross a wall. They'd never seen people give up their cultural differences, their, just their pride. They, they'd never seen this kind of love before. And they were saying, we have no word for this. This is out of this world. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. This amazing love God has for us. John uses a word for it's out of this world. And they notice that. And so in Acts 13, the first pastors are sent to Antioch. Listen to this. Simon the Niger. Niger is the, the word for black. It was, it was an African. It was a black man. Lucius the Cyrene. He was from North Africa. Tunisia, that area. So he was brown-skinned. Menaean from the court of Herod. He was royalty. He was rich. Barnabas is from Cyprus, and then Paul is a Jew. And what's going on there? Their pastors are reflecting the diversity of the city, and this church is exploding. The radical love of God. Because people decided, God says to love these people like they're my brothers and sisters. Well, I can't have a wall between me and my brother. I can't do that. i got to cross that wall because he's my brother. How stupid would that be? This incredible diversity, this incredible radical love of God because they took seriously what they were being taught. They took it and they thought, how does that affect my life? How will my life change if I put this into action? 
What will happen differently if I decide to live this way? What will happen differently in my life if I really decide to say, I'm going to love these people? I'm going to love these people. So we have that message that's been proclaimed. Now we have, in a sense, the message denied. He says, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his, own, his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Everyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. All right. So now he's going to say, look, I, I've got this. We starting with You have to keep this in context, starting with verse 1 all the way down. He's saying, what are these hallmarks of a crowd? How, how does it show itself in people's lives? And he talks about that. And now he's saying, look, we have this message, love one another. Now, here's how that message is denied at times in people's lives. Here's how it works out when we're not doing that. John is giving a warning to Christians that he's writing to. He says, don't go the way of Cain. Which way is that? Well, Cain was living in sin, and consequently his offering was not accepted. When you go back to Genesis chapter 3, uh, 4, 5, whatever it is. Go back to Genesis, start at the beginning, you'll find it. Um, uh, everybody says, you know, what was the sin of Cain? Oh, oh, you know, he, he, he did, he, his, his offering wasn't accepted. No, it says Cain was not accepted and his offering. Okay, because Cain was doing something wrong. Cain was, and God goes to him and warns him. He says, Cain, sin's at the door. It will kill you. Don't let it. Don't let it. He was consumed by anger and hatred. And he committed murder. And it's a horrifying thing, you know, when you study this. Um, um, Abel brought an offering of a lamb, a slain lamb. And, uh, and if you know, this is kind of gross. I, I don't even... They, they, will, they will cut a lamb all the way across so it bleeds quickly, so it dies very quickly, uh, it's, it's as humanely as possible. And then it's because they, it's blood. The, the, there needs to be blood. And it says in the Hebrew that Cain slaughtered Abraham. And the word slaughter is the Hebrew word they use for cutting the throat, the jugular, a ritual, sacrificial killing. And so he is consumed by hatred, so much so that he imitates the sacrifice that his brother did with the lamb on him, on his brother. Now you think about this, same parents, same environment, but it says he belonged to the evil one. He chose a side. God warned him, and he made a conscious choice. God always warns us and tells us what to do when we have a choice. We have a choice. But we can choose wrong. And that word for evil, where it says he belonged to the evil one, it's not the regular word for evil. It came up earlier, too. It's the word that means not just a person who's a bad person. It means a person who is so into corruption that they drag other people down with them because they want them to share in their misery. They're not satisfied with just being a bad person in a sense. They want others to join them. Kind of a misery loves company thing. They want others to go into the destruction that they have coming to themselves. What is that? That's Satan. Satan knows what's coming. He just wants others to join him. 
He wants to hurt God by pulling creatures he loves down with him. So with that in mind, now we go to verse 13. He says, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. In your life, you will meet people who will oppose you, people who will disagree with you, people sometimes who will mock you. But sometimes also you will meet people who will try to drag you down to the depths that they live in. You will meet people who will try to entice you into doing what they do simply and knowing that it's wrong because they want someone with them and they want someone who will be miserable like they are. They will, they will want to convince you to degrade yourself like they are degrading themselves. They will offer friendship and companionship in this degradation. This is Satan. This is what he's talking about when he uses that word for evil. In verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So John, again, he's building on this argument. He's saying, look, this is how we see the signs in our lives. And he uses where he says, um, anyone who does not love remains in death. That word remains is the word oftentimes that's translated abide. Jesus uses that word a lot. It's used in other scriptures quite a bit. And it's this idea of making something Uh, my home, I find my comfort there, I find my meaning there, I find rest, it's where I identify, it's kind of who I am. This is who I am. And John is saying to these Christians, do not abide in hate. Don't find meaning there. Don't find comfort there. Because that's the way of death. That's the way of loss of fellowship with God. You know, when God gives blessings and cursings in the Old Testament, um, oftentimes the curses are not... You know, we get this idea when God says, you do this, you'll be cursed. That God has this big club, you know, and then we do it and he goes, bonk, curse. Next, bonk, curse. But you know, that's not really what's going on there. What's happening a lot of that time is God is saying, this is the way. You go this way, that leads to cursing. You will be cursed if you go that way because that's the way that leads to cursing. That's the way that leads to destruction. That's the way that leads to hatred. Don't go there. I don't have to bonk you. You will be bonking yourself, I guess, maybe kind of in a way. I've used the word bonk too many times. All right. When we are angry and bitter and jealous, things that God says we should not be, we bring it down upon ourselves. We form our own prison. You know, when you think of prison, what is that? Prison is a kind of a form of banishment, a banishment from society. We make our own prison, and then we don't live in a way we were made to live. What happened to Cain? He was banished. He was banished. You cannot live the way God made you. To, you cannot live the way God made you to live if you do not love. It's impossible to do. Verse fifteen: Anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This goes back to the teaching uh, John heard at the Sermon on the Mount and a lot of other places, the teaching of Jesus, where he's talking about murder. He's saying it's not just physically murdering a person. It's the desire. If you, if you harbor murder in your heart, he says you're a murderer. Jesus taught that many times. And we have to actually be mindful then of where our mind goes and what it dwells on. We have to trust the grace and forgiveness of God when we confess and repent if our mind has gone astray. Because Jesus takes ethics and he applies them to our thought life, not just physically what we do. 
That's why it's always kind of interesting when people say, well, I haven't done any bad sins. It's not like I've killed anyone. But Jesus would say, yeah, you have. You've wished it. He says, you need to repent of that. That's sin. Why is that? And this, it, the Greek is very clear here that it's a habitual hatred, an idea of being consumed by it, living in it without repentance. Because to hate is to despise. It's to cut off from relationship. And murder is simply fulfilling that desire. That's what we see with Cain and Abel. The message proclaimed, the message denied, and now the message lived, verses 16 to 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So he's saying, what does this look like? Here's this message, the new, this message that we've heard from the beginning. Love one another. It's a choice that we have. We choose to do that. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. The message is denied when we hate, when we murder people in our hearts, when we wish the worst upon them. Because what are we doing when we do that? We're saying, I know enough to be the judge in this case. And let's face it, you never know enough to be the judge. You never know what a person's been through. You never know what they've grown up with. You never know what happened to them the day before, the night before, a week before, a month before. You never know what's maybe going on physically inside their body, things that may be going wrong, neurons that may be misfiring. You never know. So that when you think, man, I wish that would happen to that person, what are you doing? You're saying, I'm... I know enough to be judge, jury, and executioner. And God says, no, you don't. You're hating. And when you do that, you're denying me. So here's the demonstration of love. We see it in Jesus Christ. Two key thoughts here. Number one, it's voluntary. There it comes. It's voluntary. Jesus laid down his life. No one forced him to do it. He chose that. True love voluntarily decides what needs to be done. If it is compelled to be done, then it is duty, not love. One of my grandsons had a birthday, opened a present. Tell Nana, thank you. Thank you. Not a lot of love there because it was compelled. What's cool is if he opens a present and says thank you before his mother says, say thank you. Or she goes, say thank you. You know, that kind of a thing. True love is voluntary. Secondly, true love is vicarious. His life was laid down for us. For us. It benefits the other and it is a sacrifice. This is why sometimes if someone really bugs me, I may do something for them to get them off my back. That's not love. That's not love. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, I struggle with that. I can struggle with that. I can struggle with talking to, talking to a homeless guy and saying, man, can you just give me a couple bucks? Can you just give me five bucks? It's easier to give $5 and be done with that person than it is to actually deal with that person. 
and talk about what they really need and try to find something out about them to be able maybe to help them in a deeper way or pray for them. It's just easier to give them five bucks. It's a cheap way of telling them, get off my back. I hate it when I do that. I hate that. Because what do I do? I devalue that person. You're worth five bucks to me. Leave me alone. There's no love in that. There's no love in that. Vicarious means I'm thinking of someone else, not myself. My eyes are on that person in Jesus. And he demonstrates that for us. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, the shame. And, and, and that passage tells us, what is the joy that is set before him? You. Me. That's why he endured the shame. He endured the agony of the cross, of separation, the first time in eternity, separation from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me here? He endured that. Why? What was he thinking about? Me. Me. It, it's vicarious. It means there's sacrifice involved. And so now he says, I want you to do this for your brothers and sisters because they're your brothers and sisters. They're not strangers. They're fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. They're a part of the body of Christ. And I know, you know, you could say, Bob, there's so many needs. How can I know what to do? There's so many things to do. What do I get involved in? Well, I think, I think he answers this. He says in verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them. How can the love of God be in that person? And he uses that word sees. He sees them. And it's that word to gaze upon. It's not like you're walking along, you see somebody and just keep walking. It's you look at them. You see them. There's understanding now. There's a sense of knowing what you're looking at and what's going on there. It's to gaze intently. And there will be times in your life, and I believe this is part of what the Holy Spirit does to us, that there will be something, a need brought up, and, and it will resonate with you suddenly. It will have an impact on you more than any other of things that you could do. There's a million things to do. And the Holy Spirit will push you. He will impress you with something. And he says then, in that situation, you cannot... You, if you don't show pity, and that word literally means to... Which I love it. The, the, it's, it's such a picturesque picture word to close your heart your heart is open to something and you see something in your heart the door shut and there's no access there anymore you make a decision not to be moved and this is how important this is to god god says i want you to see the need i'm going to stir your heart on this don't say no to my face. But we can often do that. We can close our heart. We can say, this is my food. This is my time. This is my car. This is my house. This is my life. No. And this is closing. You're closing your heart to God and to the least of these. And he's saying, what is that? He's saying in this passage, that's the way of death. The closed heart is the way of death. Don't go that way. 
Because Jesus didn't say that. Jesus didn't say, I'm not, nuh-uh, nuh-uh, I'm not giving up this relationship that I have in heaven. I'm not giving up my glory to become a human being. I'm not giving up this celestial house that I live in. I don't know if there's a house, but something like that. I'm not giving up anything for these ungodly, unrighteous, sinful people. I'm not doing it. No, Jesus says, I've come to do thy will, O God. Jesus said, I'm, I'm all in on this. To refuse to be compassionate is to deny the presence of God's love in my life. That's what happens. That's what's going on. If you go to Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, people say, what, were they, what, what did God kill them for? For lying. No, it's a little more than that. It's lying to the Holy Spirit. They saw the need. The church is making, taking a collection. They have land. They sold the land. They pledged the sale of the land to help the needy. And then when the land sold, eh, you ever get that feeling? They kept back some, but they said they were giving the whole amount. They said, oh, no, no, no. It didn't sell for 100000 It sold for eighty, And they kept some for themselves. They saw the need. They decided to act. But, and then they kept part of what they had promised to God and they lied about it. And they didn't have to do it. It's so great. Peter even tells them, he says, you didn't have to do this. You didn't have to sell your land. You didn't have to pledge the whole amount. You could have pledged part of the amount. That would have been fine. Why did you have to lie? And Peter makes it clear, you're not just lying to me, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 18, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. We talked about this in the book of James, chapter 2. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? Love doesn't just need to be spoken. It does need to be spoken, but not just need to be spoken. Because if it's only spoken, it rings hollow. But when it is both, Spoken and acted upon, it is a radical, life-changing event. Uh, there was a man who was a, a world-famous historian. He taught at Yale University for years and years. His name is Kenneth Scott LaTourette. And he was authority on the Far East and the Middle East, ancient uh, and, and up-to-date in some ways, um, history and the development of Christianity, especially in the beginning. And he talks about this he, in, in a couple of his books. Why did Christianity explode in the early church? Why did it explode? Because there were literally hundreds of belief systems jockeying kind of in the marketplace of ideas for people's allegiance, for people's worship. And so, you know, we know, okay, it exploded because God was in it. Okay, that's the easy answer. I know we're in church, so you're supposed to say that. But from a historian's point of view, Historian's point of view, what made the church so successful that it exploded like it did? Because it was not well-backed. There were no huge financial heavy hitters backing it like there were many religions. All right? It was not well-connected with powerful people like many were. So what made the difference? And he was saying, he, just, he charts this out. It, it, what made the difference is it was totally inclusive. Everyone was welcomed. You know, we say around here sometimes, everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And anything is possible. 
at the foot of the cross. When God gets involved, anything is possible. And he says, he says it, it, they welcomed everyone. No other religion did that. Christianity was upfront and unashamed to welcome Jew, Gentile, slave, free. It just on and on and on. Everybody was welcomed. They, he, he, and he goes through this list and he mentions things. They welcomed the, the rich and the poor, the high and the low, the educated and the uneducated. They allowed women to be involved. You know, most religions were very exclusive for men. And there were a few that, were, that, were for, that had women priests and stuff. But oftentimes, most of the time, those women priests were merely prostitutes. That's all that was going on. And they would go you know, grab little girls that had been tossed out of homes in those days. And they would bring them to the temple and train them to be a priestess. Which meant pleasing men. And so here suddenly you have this this group of people, and they have a high sexual ethic. They say, no, no, those things are wrong. These activities are wrong. Man and a woman for life, that's what's supposed to be. That's our, that's our goal. That's what we shoot for. Sleeping around is wrong, right? And so women were allowed in and to participate, and the se- sexual ethic of Christianity empowered those women. Slaves were allowed to participate and be involved in the ministries of the church. No one did that. Also slaves, Paul says, were to love them. He tells in the book of Philemon, love that slave like he's your brother. Now you think that through. That ultimately is the death knell of slavery. Because if I have a slave and I'm supposed to love that slave like it's my brother, man, first thing I'm going to do is free that slave. Because that's my brother. And this started slowly to take hold and then let up, you know, the history of that. That's a long history. As a historian, La Tourette said, where did this inclusiveness come from? It was so radical. And he says, it's their Christology, their theology of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only where he's God and man. Totally unique in the realm of man and totally unique in the realm of God's. This is nothing they'd ever heard before. The salvation he offered by grace through faith for anyone was totally unique. Every other group was saying, this is what you do to earn, to please the gods, to earn salvation. And Christians were told, no, you can't earn it. It's given to you free. Now just reflect it in the way you live. Reflect that freedom in the way you live. His great love for people led them to practice that Satan great love for each other and for those that came into their lives. And Latourette says it was an unstoppable force. Could not be stopped. And it overwhelmed the known world. Because, he said, this is from the very beginning, the message you have heard, we should love one another. And they took it seriously. And they lived it. And it changed the world. And, and the message is still the same for us. Still the same for us. You're going to bump into somebody today, tomorrow, this week, that needs you. That needs a word of encouragement. Maybe needs, may, maybe needs some time together. Maybe needs some prayer. Whatever it may be. You're going to have the opportunity, in the name of Jesus, to minister to someone and possibly have an impact on them for eternity, which goes back to something we've been saying a couple times lately. The things that you're involved in right now, think about them in light of eternity. What are you doing now that will matter in a million years? What are you worried about now 
that will matter in a million years. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it applies to us. It's 2,000 years old. And yet it is applicable to us today in our daily life in a totally different world. And yet it still applies. Help us to be found faithful. Help us to take seriously what you say and what you want to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering. If you're a guest here, we want you to know we're not asking you to give. This is what our regular tenders and our members do as as a part of being a part of this church, this fellowship. Thanks. Thank you.